So we're in a series, a teaching series, looking at games people play. And so we've talked about games like Twister, which we're all glad we didn't have to see that going on up here, uh, Battleship and Chess and Angry Birds, and, and, and then talking about some themes that, that um, impact our life, things like surrender, um, different topics like dealing with conflict and, and anger and all those sorts of things. This, um, <clears throat> this Christmas, I, my wife Chris and I usually buy like a family gift for you know, us on Christmas, and it's usually like a board game or something like that. And so this year, we got, I'd seen this, I don't know, online or something, this game called Speak Out. Have you seen this one before? How many of you know this? Okay, how many of you have never? Oh, you're in for a treat. This is awesome. This game is bizarre, okay? Here, here's basically the way it works, is you're, you're in groups of two, like teams, and um, you, you, you pick up these cards, and you have to read it to your partner, and they have to try to guess what you're saying. So it's things like um, chomping on a crunchy kumquat. That's weird. Um, bland tomato bisque, um, or the one that um, we did at the house that's uh, proud pet parent. Okay, so just, you know, these little phrases. doesn't seem that hard, but what adds to it is you have to say it while putting this in your mouth. Okay, so... I'm actually going to show you here. So you kind of go like this. Like that. Yeah, it's a good look. And then you have to say the, the, the phrase. The, the, you have to say it, and they have to guess what you're saying, right? Uh, so, uh, yeah. I hope my dentist, Dr. Johnson, isn't here. He'll see that I didn't floss. But, and this is funny. I opened this up. We're like such germaphobes. We've got like separate bags, like unused, clean. Um, and so, and so we got this, and uh, as soon as we got it, one day I was at work, and my, my mother-in-law was up, and she and the kids decided to play a round of this. And so um, my oldest son, Keaton, and my, and my uh, second daughter, Serena, were on a team together. So Keaton's, Keaton's reading this card. He, he's trying to get her to say, the peach pie was perfectly peppered and prepared. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no way. No way. <laughs> okay. And um, just to give you a little bit of context, so they're sitting down playing. Um, they had just eaten some of, like one of our family's favorite uh, desserts is grasshopper pie. If you know, that's like a creamed mint kind of thing. It's good. And so they decided to play this. So Keaton's trying to get her to say this. And uh, here's the video of it. That's the Cunningham household, right there, just so you know. 
Someone watched it earlier and they said, was he cussing at her? Is that why you beeped it out? I'm like, no, no, he, that was like a buzzer that, that he was up. So, but we, we have signed Keaton up for uh, anger management class. So <laughs> don't worry, the Cunningham household, things are good. Sometimes we, we come into seasons in life which are like disorienting, just like confusing. Like I don't understand, I don't get it, right? And I think the reason why, if you wanna follow along in your bulletin on the back, Point number one, I think the reason why life is sometimes disorienting and confusing is because we, we live somewhere between our theology, what I believe about God, what he's like, and our biography, like how I actually experience my, my life. And sometimes there's like dissonance between the two, you know what I mean? Like a disconnect and, and it creates tension. Like, um, you know, you might say to yourself, yeah, I, you know, my theology is... I believe God is good and he wants my best, but you know, as a married couple, we've had multiple miscarriages and we can't seem to have the family that we've always dreamed about. I, you know, my theology is that God is good and he wants my best, but you know, my, my workplace, it's horrid and it's five, six days a week of being, in pe- being around people who like have it out for me and it's so difficult. Or my theology is I believe you know, God is good and he, he, wants, he wants the best for me and and yet my, my biography is that, uh, you know, mental illness and anxiety has plagued me for, for, for years. Or as maybe one of my friends would, would say, I, my theology is that God is good and he wants, he wants my best and the best for me. And, and yet I struggle with same-sex attraction and I feel so lonely in my faith that there's this disconnect, there's this dissonance, this tension that is, that is created. And as a result of that, Naturally, you've got a lot of feelings surrounding those things, right? Sorrow, anger, anxiety, you know, tons of feelings. And, and, and people deal differently with, with feelings, right? Probably the way you deal with your feelings might have something to do with your family of origin, how you grew up, what it was like there. Some people, the way they respond to all these feelings that get brought up because of confusion, life confusion is they tend to suppress them and kind of deny them. Like, I'll be honest, that's my tendency. That's where I go. And then, and then other people, all of those feelings, they give them the driver's seat in their life. And they're just like taken over by these strong feelings in their life. And what I would suggest is that the Bible gives a third way. Specifically, the book of Psalms offers a third way. Point number two, the Psalms teach us a third way of dealing with emotional confusion of life. And it's a word you probably haven't used in the past week or so. (laughs) Lament. This idea of biblical lament. The Bible says this is what you are to do when life is disorienting. You're to speak out. Not like the game, but in a very unique way, this biblical concept of lament. The book of Psalms, if, if you were to like crack open your Bible, like right in the middle, kind of divide it in half, you'd probably open up to the book of Psalms. It's the longest book in the Bible. There are 150 of these Psalms. And Psalms are, are people's words to God, all, all 150 of them. They're, they're poems or songs of people expressing the emotional place, not burying it and denying it, not letting it take the driver's seat, but this third way of processing through these deep emotions in life that are caused by the tension between 
<laughs> my theology <clears throat> and my biography. And um, you've got a, uh, an insert in your bulletin. Take a look at that. We're going to read through Psalm 13 in a minute. But first, if you flip over to the back side, this is kind of a helpful way to think about these 150 Psalms. Uh, Walter Brugman, who's an Old Testament scholar, says all 150 kind of fit into three buckets. Okay, the first kind of psalm is, is a psalm of orientation. Psalms of orientation are these songs or poems or whatever written to God when people are, are in, in the context of like well-being. Man, life is good. God is good. My relationships are intact and they're writing out of a sense of thankfulness. And, uh, you know, man, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. <laughs> and then there's kind of the second bucket and these are psalms of disorientation. Psalms of disorientation are typically written out of a place where huge disconnect between my theology and my biography. And I'm, be I'm bewildered, I'm confused, and so feelings are, are evoked of like doubt, God, what's going on? Frustration, anger, resentment. And then there is a category called psalms of new orientation. These are songs or poems written from a person to God when they have moved through disorientation and they've seen God come through, they've seen God act, and they're, they're again at this place of saying, God, I've been transformed, I've been changed, you've changed me. And, and again, this thankfulness, God, you saved me, you came through, and that sort of thing. The second category, the second bucket, the Psalms of Lament, they're really unique. And I would say we probably know the least about them, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Essentially what Psalms of Lament do is the author holds up what's wrong with the world, the injustice, the brokenness, and, and it calls attention to it. God, God, look at this. And it objects. This is not okay. This is not acceptable. And it complains about it and, and thinks about it. And... Um, Typically, these, these psalms move kind of in a pattern. Psalm chapter 13, you'll, you'll see it up on the side screens. I want you to write three words next to each one of these paragraphs. This is a psalm of lament. The first stanza or the first paragraph, write the word lament next to. That's what's going to go on in verses 1 and 2. Then the, the second stanza, the psalmist changes from lament to request. Write the word request. And then finally, he moves into a third stanza, and the psalmist moves into a place of praise, of trust, declaring his trust in God. And typically, psalms of lament move in this process here. Um, let's read Psalm chapter 13. And as we read in a second, year, I want you to make some notes because you're going to observe some things and see some, some things that are very, very telling. Psalm 13, this is a Psalm of David. And we read verse one, how long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? And day after day have sorrow in my heart. How long will my enemy triumph over me? Then the request, look on me. Answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. And then the praise, but I, and he has the emphatic pronoun I, but I, I trust 
in your unfailing love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, as I mentioned, most psalms move in this process. Lament, request, praise. There are actually only two psalms of all the lament psalms that never make it out of lament. Psalm 44 and Psalm 88. In fact, Psalm 88, it's so dark, the last line is, and darkness is my only friend. In fact, in the Hebrew, it actually lets the word darkness be on your tongue at the end. It just says, and my only friend is darkness. Reminds me of another song written by a Jewish man recently, Paul Simon. 1964, he wrote the song, The Sound of Silence. Remember how that begins? Hello, darkness, my old friend. Right? These are songs of lament. And so each one of these, I want, us to, I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, ver, uh, verses 1 and 2, the lament portion, what's the phrase that he repeats multiple times? How long, circle that. How many times does he, circle every time you see it. How many times is it? Four, four times. How long? Each how long introduces a new complaint. And each how long builds on the previous one. And the how long is to emphasize that this is long-standing abandonment that this psalmist is sensing here. And look at, look at what the complaints are. Verse 1, he says, how, um, how long, Lord, will... What's the next word? You. Underline the word you. He's talking to God. This is his complaint toward God. This is his theological complaint. Uh, take a look in verse 2. How long must I, underline the word I. This is his personal complaint. And then the very last line of verse 2. How long will my enemy, underline my enemy. Do you see what he's doing? He has a theological complaint, God. He has a personal complaint himself. And he has a social complaint his community. He's, he's reflecting on how his situation is impacting his relationship with God, his relationship with, his, with himself, and his relationship with his community around him. He, he, he's, full, he's considering all of the implications of what going through a season of suffering involves. And what's, what's really interesting, each one of these complaints, it's laced with accusations against God. Look at, look at the first one, the theological complaint. He says, uh, the first accusation is, you what? You forgot. Okay? He's, he's accusing God of the sin of omission, forgetting, failing to do something. You should have acted and you didn't. But then he steps it up. What does he accuse him of next? You haven't just forgotten. You have hidden your face. Oh, that's, that's not just unintentional. That's an intentional act. That's not the sin of omission, that's the sin of commission. <laughs> He's saying, God, it's not just that you failed to do something, your decision-making, your will and your actions are actually, you're intentionally bringing me harm, God. Wow. <laughs> I mean, he is being very, very blunt. And then he doubles down, and he says, because of that, verse, verse 2, he says, I must wrestle with my own thoughts. The word there, thoughts, means his own counsel. What he's saying is this. Again, another accusation. There's a, there's a biblical principle that you shouldn't navigate life by your own wisdom. You know what I mean by that? Like lean on God. Remember the, many of you guys probably know Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on 
your own understanding. God, because you've hidden yourself, I have to lean on my own understanding, my own thoughts, which is disobedience to you. Because of your actions, I act, I'm disobeying you and it's your fault. Do you see what he's saying here? It's laced with accusations about that. The, the, psalmist, or the psalmist here, is he's building, and do you see the point? The psalmist is holding nothing back, right? No filter. This is like his legit, genuine, all of these feelings that he has that he's not suppressing, and he's not giving them the steering wheel in his life. He's doing this third way of somehow bringing them to God in lament. And what's fascinating is most of these lament psalms, Psalm 13 isn't standard. It shows the order. Most lament psalms, paragraph one is like this long. <laughs> the request is about this long, which is weird. That sort of stood out to me. Like, why, why so much weight on that? There was a, um, you might have seen this uh, letter. It was going around on the internet a number of years back. It was called a Letter from Seat 29E. Do you remember this? There, there's this guy, this is, and this is a legit letter. It's been confirmed. A passenger on Continental Airlines, and he was sitting in seat 29E, and because of its proximity to the bathroom, to the laboratory, in mid-flight, he wrote a letter of complaint to Continental Airlines. Let me read it to you here. <laughs> Dear Continental Airlines, I am disgusted as I write this note to you about the miserable experience I'm having sitting in seat 29E on one of your aircrafts. As you may know, this seat is situated directly across from the laboratory, so close that I can reach out my left arm and touch the door. And then he's got a picture here of the bathroom in seat 29E. <clears throat> he goes on, all of my senses are being tortured, tortured simultaneously. It's difficult to say what the worst part about sitting in 29E really is. Is it the stench of the sanitation fluid that's blown all over my body every 60 seconds when the door opens? Is it the whoosh of the constant flushing? Or is it the passenger's bottoms that seem to fit into my personal space like a pornographic jigsaw puzzle? <laughs> he goes on, I constructed a stink shield by shoving one end of a blanket into the overhead compartment. While effective in blocking at least some of the smell and offering a bit of privacy, the bottoms on my body factor has increased as without my evil glare, passengers feel, feel free to lean up against what they think is some kind of blanketed wall. The next bottom that touches my shoulder will be the last. I am picturing a boardroom full of executives giving props to the young promising engineer that figured out how to squeeze an additional row of seats onto this plane by putting them next to the laboratory. I would like to flush his head in the toilet that I am close enough to touch and taste from my seat. Putting a seat here was a very bad idea. I just heard a man groan in there. This is horrible. <laughs> Worse yet, I've paid over $400 for the honor of sitting in the seat. Seat 29E could only be worse if it were located inside the bathroom. I wonder if my clothing will retain the sanitizing odor or my hair. I feel like I'm bathing in a toilet bowl of blue liquid. I am filled with deep hatred for your plane designer and a general dis-ease that may last for hours. We are finally descending, and soon I will be able to tear down the stink shield, but the scars will remain. <laughs> Here's my question. Has he, has he made any request? No. Here it comes. I suggest 
that you initiate immediate removal of the seat from all of your crafts. Just remove it and leave the smoldering brown empty hole, a place good for sturdy, non-absorbing luggage maybe, but not human cargo. <laughs> Letter from seat 29E, right? What was he doing? He, he, when did he do the request? It wasn't until the very end. So what's he doing? He's lamenting. <laughs> he's sitting there, and he's looking at all of the ways that it affects him, it affects everything, and he's coming at it at seven different angles, and he's expressing it, and he's being sarcastic, and he's frustrated, and all these sorts of things. But here's the thing. When I encounter a season of seat 29E, you know what I tend to do? I just go to immediately to request mode. God changes, God do that, God would you please change, you get. Now, is request valid? Of course, it was in Psalm 13 that we just read, but it, it steps over something, doesn't it? It steps over lament, which is really interesting, because you'd sort of think, well, maybe that's, maybe that's not good, maybe you shouldn't do it. Why is God inviting us? This is the question. The fact that there are one-third of all the 150 psalms are psalms of lament, that's stacked. That's a lot. Why is it that God is inviting us to into the process of lament and it actually encourages us to give focused attention to our difficult surroundings, to actually carefully observe the negative situation that we find ourselves in? Number three, the power of lament psalms is in their ability to create space between you and your situation. Here's what I mean. When I think this is a terrible day, my sadness increases. When I think well, this is sadness I'm feeling, it creates a tiny but critical space between a distance between me and my feelings. And what it tells me is that I am not my feelings. When I, when I think oh, you infuriate me, my anger arises. When I think, huh, this is anger I'm feeling, I actually begin to calm down a little bit. Here's the idea. Careful awareness of my feelings in the midst of a time of disorientation brings with it a new awareness that I am not my feelings. It's the difference between looking through a window and looking at a window. When I look out a window, I can see all of the smudges and dust and cracks that distort my vision. What I want us to see today is that through this process of biblical lament, this third way, God is actually inviting you during seasons of disorientation to come before him and to lay all of your feelings, all of the stuff out on the table like, like a bunch of puzzle pieces and spread them all out and flip them over and look at them seven different ways and with him, he says, you can do that with me. You can actually seek me in this process. And that's why God has given us the Psalms of Lament. That's why there aren't two Psalms of Lament. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of Psalms of Lament. And amazingly, number four in your outline, somehow frustrated people's words to God have become God's word to frustrated people. Isn't that amazing? See, I would suggest most of us who live, at least in the West, are really not just unfamiliar with 
songs or prayers of lament like uncomfortable, right? I'll prove it to you. Um, how awkward would it be if you went to like a prayer meeting and everyone's praying and then it's someone's turn and, and you know, they say, um, you know, something like, Lord, why have you rejected us forever? <laughs> awkward, right? That would be weird. That's Psalm 72, you know? Um, the lament psalms, they don't just give us permission to do this, compulsion. You must do this in times of disorientation. Now, let me, you, let me address a, a, an objection. You might say, well, hold on. I remember the Old Testament, and I remember, you know, like when the children of Israel are wandering in the desert for the 40 years, remember this? Like the book of Numbers chapter 11 has this account where it says they were grumbling against God, and God condemned them for it? Are you, isn't, isn't this grumbling? No. No, it's not. Here's the difference. The, the children of Israel, as they went through the desert, they were complaining about God behind his back, or so they thought. And they said, we're frustrated, we're angry at you, we're going to go get a new God. See, the psalmist says, no, 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 I want you here with me, God. I want you to hear all of this. I want to say this to your face. And it's, I'm angry and frustrated at you, and I will not let go. The psalmist never lets go. But I want to do this. It's, it's inviting God into the hurt and the pain and the sorrow and saying, I want to lay it all. Even if there's accusations there, it's doing that with him. See, often people feel like they should just jump to paragraph three. I remember having coffee with um, a woman, this is a few years back, and she was a bit of an older lady, and her, her parents had, been, had passed away 20, 30 years ago. And she, she had had a lot of abuse from her father. She was very angry over years. I mean, he's been dead for years, and she had all of this pent-up anger and resentment toward him and toward other broken relationships in her life, a lot of bad, hard situations. And we, we, we sat down, and she said, Pastor Brent, I can't pray. I can't pray. And I said, why not? She said, because I'm, I'm so angry. I'm so angry, I can't pray. And I said, have you ever prayed your anger to God? She said, oh no, I could never do that. And I said, no, you must do that. Because see, the assumption is, the only thing that God wants to hear is paragraph three. And if that's where you're at, you're at a place of orientation, wonderful. <laughs> that's your vocabulary. If you're at a place of disorientation, of sorrow, of hurt, this is your vocabulary. And God says, you must do it. It is necessary for you. If you're ever going to get to that place of new orientation, you've got to go through lament. Otherwise, you'll have a weak, fluffy faith where you just fake it. And then it's crumbly. It's weak. Because, see, here's the reality. You have an enemy of your soul. And Satan would want nothing more than for you to never expose all of your hurt and anger and accusations and frustrations to God. He would love for you to keep that buried back here and just let it eat you up from the inside. He would love that. What God would love for you to do is to say, come talk to me. <clears throat> C.S. Lewis, one of my, well, probably my favorite author of all time, uh, he wrote a book called A Grief Observed. And it, it, it was actually not intended to be a book. It was sort of his journal. And it was his journaling after his wife, Joy, died a horrible death of cancer. And... Um, he had prayed for her to be healed and thought it would happen and went into remission, but she, she died. And so he wrote the, these reflections. He just sort of observed himself and what's going on. And in fact, when it was first published, it was published under a pseudonym. 
He didn't even want his name on it because he was like, people will think I've lost it. <laughs> people think I've rejected God that I hate because it's so raw. In fact, at one place in the uh, book, he, he, he writes this. He says, what if the truth is that God always vivisects? That's a word for meaning like um, opening something up, cutting it um, while it's still alive, you know? What if God just likes inflicting pain? Like, what if, God, is that what you're like? You just kind of want to harm me? Like, is that, what you're, is that the kind of God you are that you just like bringing about difficulty? You like seeing me struggle? Is that it? The very next line in his writing, he says, I wrote that last night. It was a yell rather than a thought. See, he was coming before God. He was accusing God. Is this what you're about? We must talk openly and honestly to God about our sense of abandonment when we're in these times of disorientation. Because here's the thing. If, if you bury yourself in the Psalms, and I'll be the first to admit it, I fail at this a lot. Like, I've been convicted of, like, i got to do this more. If you bury yourself in the Psalms, you will emerge with a new vocabulary that allows you to speak out. And it's, a, it's vocabulary that's actually inspired by God himself, and it allows you to live Godward, to lean into your faith in him. So look at verses 3 through 6 here. It's not until fully lamenting that the psalmist makes a request. He gets to paragraph two. Look on me. Answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I, and he, he, he adds the emphatic pronoun there, like doubles it, but I, I trust in your unfailing love. My heart will rejoice. This is a resolution statement. In your deliverance, I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has dealt bountifully with me. Number five in your outline, we can praise God, paragraph three, we can praise God only when we are willing to trust him with our laments. See, I would suggest there's a connection between biblical lament, paragraph one, and, and, and praise. And the connection is this, like lamenting will get you there because lament, biblical lament, it's first and foremost a form of prayer. <laughs> it's communication to God. In fact, I, I would suggest that atheists can't really lament. Um, atheists can stand and scream up into the void where nothing is heard, their frustration, but they can't lament. C.S. Lewis, who I mentioned earlier, spent much of his life as an atheist. And after becoming a passionate follower of Jesus, looking back on his life as an atheist, he said, I was really bothered by all the injustice in the world. I was bothered by evil and the brokenness and all these sorts of things. But he said, but I didn't believe in God and I was mad at God for not existing. <laughs> do you see what he's saying? I wanted to lament. I wanted to talk to someone who could do something about it. But there was no one there. So I could never lament. He had this urge, I need to lament, but there's no one there. See, lament is an act of faith. It is not an act of lack of faith. Number six, while lament may fill much of our sufferings, joy has the last word. 
author that I read this week had this line, which I, I loved. He said, lamentation is a journey towards God, not a final destination. Most readers of, of Psalm 13, um, there's a looming question in their mind as they read it. What happened between verses four and five? <laughs> you know what I mean? What happened? What changed? Well, we don't know because we're, you know, we're not even told what was going on in David's life at, at the time, what the circumstances were, but we can look to the rest of Scripture and say, how does God respond when people lament? So I guess one option would be maybe there was a priestly oracle. Example, um, Hannah is a woman in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 1. She, she and her husband don't have any children, and she's broken by that, and she has a lament. She brings it to the temple, and she's crying out to God, God, you don't hear me, you don't know, you don't understand. And inspired by God, this priest comes up, Eli, and puts his hand on her and says, just, I just want you to know God hears you. <laughs> maybe, maybe it was a priestly oracle. Maybe David went to temple, and he was crying out verses one and two, God, God, where are you? And maybe a priest came over to him and said, God knows, he hears you. Maybe, maybe it was deliverance. Maybe, maybe his circumstances changed. Maybe he was saved from his foes or something happened that, that he was actually delivered. The circumstances changed. Or maybe as he was processing lament, as he was going through the process, somewhere, somehow, God showed up. I just mean God's, God's presence. Like maybe he saw the face of God, the presence of, of God. Maybe it's like the book of Job. Job is a guy who, who, who spends like 40-some chapters, pure lament. I mean, he makes seat 29E look like nothing. He just goes on and on, and, you, know, you know, accusing God and all this sort of thing. God, I want my day in court with you. I want, I want answers. I want answers. I want you to show up. Explain yourself to me. And at the end of the book, God shows up. And he gives him no answer. He doesn't give any answers, but he gets God's presence. And somehow the presence of God is like balm to the hurt and the brokenness and the sorrow of Job because somehow God showed up. And I would suggest if, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've given your life to him, if you're an apprentice of his, the most important thing that you believe that God showed up on a cross. The most central thing that you believe is that God showed up on a cross. And in fact, Jesus' last words hanging on the cross, some of the last words on his tongue, was he called our attention to the most famous lament psalm of all, Psalm 22. Remember the words? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me so far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you don't answer. By night, and I find no rest. And he, the psalmist who wrote chapter 22, he's holding up for the world to see this is what's wrong and objecting, God, you must do something about this. And that's exactly what God did. He held something up and he did something about it. The cross, the most righteous man who ever lived, the God-man, Jesus, he embraces the cross, and in doing so, he embraces your lament and my lament. Unfortunately, it doesn't end there. On the third day, Jesus rose bodily from 
the grave and he, he defeated death and he, he cut evil off at the root. And what he cut off at the root was what brings you and me lament. The old, broken, messed up, sinful world. And that's why the psalmist of this famous lament, Psalm 22, my God, my God, wherever you forsake me, this is why he reaches in verse 24, for God has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Because of that, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of all the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Future generations, that's us, will be told about the Lord, and they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, those are the people who aren't even here yet, that he has done it. See, here's the thing. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to experience adversity unavoidable. It's going to happen. But we have to realize adversity is not our destiny. We are a people of destiny and our destiny is glory. And we can be absolutely sure, absolutely sure that our lives, like, like a psalm which moves from lament to a place of praise and glory, you can be absolutely certain as a follower of Jesus that your life will move from a place of suffering to a place of glory. And the reason you can be sure of that is because Jesus has already made the move himself. That's the power of the resurrection. Nothing like it. We are a people of destiny. And that destiny is glory. This is why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 4, man, I am pressed on every side, but I'm not crushed. <laughs> uh, I, I, I am persecuted, but I'm not abandoned. I, I am struck down but I'm not destroyed. I am perplexed, I am confused, but I'm not in despair because <laughs> I know where my hope is. Here's what I'd like us to do this morning is pray with one another, for one another as a community. You might be in a place in your life where man, you're at a place of new orientation. Thank God. Pray the Psalms of new orientation, embrace it. But you also may be at a place of disorientation. And lament is where you need to go. This, this third option, that's what you need. Biblical lament, you need to step into that. We want to come alongside you as a community and pray for you this morning. Maybe, maybe you're at a place of new orientation and this week God might bring someone to your mind who you need to lament with. Remember the command, weep with those who weep. So can we do that as a community? Can we stand alongside our brothers and sisters? You can stay seated, but, and, and pray with and for them. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, thank you for teaching us the vocabulary of lament, the power, the necessity of it. God, would you, would you allow it to be like a grammar book, teaching us the language of prayer and biblical faith. God, teach us how to talk to you, not just when things are wonderful and good, but through all seasons of life. Help us to know that moving into lament, it's not weakness, but it's actually a place of when we process through, we actually come out of a place of greater power and orientation. And Lord, we want to pray especially for those 
who are in a place of disorientation, who are lamenting or who need to lament, God, we come alongside them and we petition you on their behalf. We object to it. God, we ask, would you please act in their circumstances? Would you bring deliverance to damaged relationships? It's not okay. Would you bring deliverance to those who feel exploited? It's not okay. Would you bring deliverance to those who, f- who feel just abandoned? God, would you bring deliverance to those who have walked under a cloud for so, so long? And would you remind them that what is true in the light is still true in the dark? God, would you give us as a community of Jesus followers, would you give us new orientation? Would you remind us of your great works, your covenant faithfulness? Remind us of Jesus' victory over sin by the cross and his resurrection. Would you remind us that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead resides in us through your Holy Spirit? Empower us to walk in the joy that comes from knowing we are adopted sons and daughters of the King. And would you create within us, Father, a longing for new creation to come? When you will wipe every tear from our eyes, when there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, because the old order of things it will have passed away and Jesus will have made all things new, all creation, including us. But until then, until then, God, we declare, as the psalmist do, that God is our victory and he is here. And we pray that in the name that never disappoints, the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.